0: Hello, and welcome to the Ninety Minutes or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements, and this is the podcast that celebrates films for 90-minute or less runtime. In each episode, a guest will select a film, and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival. Today, we're joined by actor, comedian, and the man behind the podcast Dead Eyes, Connor Ratliff. Hello, Connor.
1: Hello, Sam. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast.
0: Thank you very much for joining us, Connor, from Missouri today in, what I have to say, listeners, is an amazing uh, blanket fort uh, for superb audio uh, from Connor's side of this conversation.
1: Yeah, I, ho- I hope you can hear it in the sound quality.
0: Dead Eyes, uh, your podcast I think it was released at the very beginning of 2020. It's quite a new podcasting is quite a new uh, endeavor for you, but it, it links back to I guess your first uh, profession uh, being a, being an actor.
1: Yes, um which is a profession that I I actually I went to drama school at the I was in the first graduating class of the Liverpool Institute for Performing Arts. And so I was I was a I graduated in uh, 1998. From Lippa, and then I moved to London, and I you know tried to be an actor for a couple of years. And the podcast, uh, the inspiration for it stems from something that happened almost exactly twenty years ago, which is that I got cast in a, a tiny role in Band of Brothers, which was uh, which of course was being filmed in England. And uh, the day before I was supposed to film my scene, my first scene, I got a call from someone in my agent's office saying. Tom Hanks, who was directing the episode, um, has seen your audition tape, and he's having second thoughts. He thinks you have dead eyes. And so I was summoned to London immediately to re-audition for Tom Hanks and was fired uh, minutes later. You know, which was, at the time, was this sort of, you know, I was in my early 20s. This was like this kind of personally and professionally devastating rejection but now, 20 years later, I'm sort of revisiting it from a, a different perspective where it's uh, hopefully more of a uh, just a fun exploration of the themes of, you know, rejection and how strange the uh, audition process and the casting process in, uh, in the world of show business can be. Um, we talk to different people. We, I kind of treat it like a, as if it's a serious investigation, like, like serial or something. But hopefully it's funny.
0: I binged the first few episodes which are are online and I, yeah, I think you're... That investigative reporter is, is very engaging, and it does make you you sort of treat it like a page turner. You want to just get right onto the next episode to see how the you know the the case, the mystery will, will carry on, even though there isn't you know the I guess you you lay it out quite clearly in the first episode. You know the mystery is reasonably low stakes yeah. at this point.
1: Yeah, and there's you know we're we're really you know there's there's not necessarily a lot of meat on the bone in terms of at a certain point once you've laid out all the facts, it becomes kind of tricky trying to find well where does the where does the investigation go? from here and we've been pretty lucky in 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 uh discovering a few things here and there that we hadn't anticipated in terms of planning the
0: series did you did you see it expanding in this way and and bringing in this sort of wider industry
1: yeah that was uh, because i think some people assumed at the beginning that it was a, a limited series and that it would be maybe a few episodes and then it would build towards me talking to tom hanks and that that you know that would be sort of solve very quickly but my vision of it always was that I'm not necessarily in a hurry to solve this uh, that doesn't mean we're not trying but we haven't actively reached out to Tom Hanks yet in part because I have a list of beats that I want to hit before uh, you know I sort of want to do my due diligence and there are people that I feel like I, I want to talk to or I need to talk to before uh, we get to that point point. But I also, you know, I have to say, you know, we're we're getting ready to put out um, episodes nine and 10 of Dead Eyes, and of the first 10 episodes, almost half of them have been things that were not on my original plan when we recorded episode one. Obviously, one of the episodes it was just completely because of COVID and because um, everything got derailed. So that's one episode. But I didn't have an Amy Mann episode planned when it started because... I had forgotten that her album was the album I was listening to that summer. I had just kind of disassociated in my mind the the timeline. And it wasn't until she expressed how much she liked the podcast. And I was like, oh, well, we should find a reason to have you on. And then it was like, uh, it was like a repressed memory or something. I realized, wait a second. We have something to talk about, which is that you put out this record a month before... I got fired. So I bought the record at the height of my excitement about Band of Brothers and then continued to listen to it in the in the in the depths of my rejection. And the album is itself about, you know, it's connected to rejection and show business and failure. And so that's one of my favorite episodes that we've done. And if I had been, you know, rigorously pre-planning every move of the podcast, we probably wouldn't have arrived at that. I think that's where a lot of the the juice of the podcast is, is like, I don't know the answers. I don't know where we're going, but you're going to go on this journey with me.
0: Well, I'm I'm looking forward to listening to, to more episodes. We'll have a link to Dead Eyes in the show notes for this. Um, but uh, yeah, highly, highly recommend listening if you haven't already, listeners. Now, Connor, I know you're a big film fan uh, because well, because I've been following you on social media and uh, and I've been loving seeing um, more of the you as George Lucas and the George Lucas talk show.
1: Uh, yes, I do a talk show now online. We're, now we're doing these uh, on, on planetscum.live. We're doing this is a show that for years I've been doing at UCB. But now that that theater's closed where I pretend to be George Lucas and my sidekick is uh, the actor Griffin Newman as Watto the Toydarian junk dealer and slave trader from the uh, Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones. And other than that, it's just a normal talk show. But we've been enjoying trying to figure out how to make this uh, transition from a New York City, you-had-to-be-there kind of cult comedy show to something that anybody who wants to can tune into and watch online, which is a different... Yeah you know, uh, and and we've been having a lot of fun figuring out like in what ways uh this show can be different, you know.
0: It's been really fun watching it on Instagram and on you know streaming on <laughs> online. There's something about George Lucas is such a I guess he's he's kind of a mystery because he doesn't do a lot of press anyway, but you know the Star Wars fans know what he sounds like and he's got you do you do such a good George Lucas. It's so compelling to watch.
1: Yeah, I mean George Lucas is one of my heroes and he's fascinating because He's someone who is, you know, objectively one of the most successful artists in history. And yet he also has these things in his career that are regarded as, you know, tremendous failures. But when you look at a list of those failures, some of them are among the most successful movies of all time. You know, obviously I'm fascinated by success and failure. You know, that's the theme of Dead Eyes. But that's the thing that fascinates me about George Lucas is that, like, his body of work is... So riddled with uh, just complications in terms of how you even judge which ones are the hits and which ones are the misses It
0: Just leaves uh, these lasting impressions even if he doesn't mean to I, I guess he's just so practical in that respect Like like setting up all of the tech companies and the sound companies It's just like well, I want my movie to have this great sound. I want to have these great visual effects you just need yeah. to make this company And then, then it's just there becoming a world leader
1: on its own whilst he's doing more work yeah, it's, it's yeah, his, his, the effect that he has on the way things are made is preposterously huge.
0: Well, I'm glad, I'm glad we get to see more of him via the George yeah. Lucas talk show. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to, trying to keep him in the spotlight.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think of all of the guests we've had on so far, your shortlist was. Incredibly, uh, it was really impressive and it was such a good range of films uh, But I think you had maybe seven or eight films on it and we've whittled it down to one today Yeah, how did you choose to film today over over the other choices?
1: I kept going back to it and I kept thinking well I don't know if I want to do this one and the thing that was really stopping me that was the film that I've chosen Should I say it?
0: Let's say it. Let's reveal
1: Alan Partridge, Alpha Papa Although I, what I'm finding we can get into this is that it seems to have different titles depending on where you're watching it because I think if you watch it in, in America, it's just called Alan Partridge. Part of that, I think, is because Alan Partridge is not very well known in America compared to England. And that was originally that was my reservation. I was like, well, how do people find Alan Partridge stuff? I was about to to email you a different choice when I realized that in America on the new streaming service HBO Max, they have not all but a a lot of Alan Partridge on the streaming service, so I thought there is a way for people to explore this character and get to know Steve Coogan's Alan Partridge. When famous DJ
0: Alan Partridge's radio station is taken over by a new media conglomerate, it sets in motion a chain of events which will see Alan having to work with the police to defuse a potentially violent siege. It's really weird how there's no mention of his sort of legacy
1: or his beloved character on on the version I've got here. It's just about a radio DJ in a siege. And I I saw, I went to the New York, I I think I was at the American premiere of the movie. I went to, uh, I think it was part of the New York Film Festival or something. There was a premiere of this movie and my friend Jordan Klepper and I, uh, Jordan Klepper who um, from The Daily Show and and, uh, The Opposition and Uh, various things on Comedy Central, he and I were on an improv team together and we immediately bonded over our love of Steve Coogan and Alan Partridge. And so when we heard that there was going to be a New York premiere of Alpha Papa, we immediately got tickets and went to see this movie. And so this was, I had a very pleasant, very, very warm memory of the first time seeing this movie in New York City. And being able to, for the first time, I think, enjoy, except for the times that I've seen Steve Coogan perform... Live, Which actually I said times so it's only one time that I've seen him live in concert. It's the only other time that where I've actually been able to enjoy Alan Partridge with like the, the communal laughter of everybody getting it at the same time.
0: It's such a rare experience for, for I guess for fans of this character. He's he's been around since the early nineties, started as a radio character and then uh, was just a very small character on on a parody current affair show called uh The Day Today. And he and yeah, he's just grown. He's got this and then he's had these multiple spin off sitcoms on the BBC and, and now on Sky in, in the UK. It was a long time coming, I think, for for a lot of fans, but no one had ever seen him unless you'd went to a live show, uh, would have seen him with a room full of people it would have been a living room full of people at best
1: yeah yeah maybe like a college college dorm room or something you know i'm sure there there have been occasions but it would be rare it would be a rare opportunity to be able to to have that experience now i i'll I'll walk you through my how i discovered partridge because when i was at Lippa in liverpool i guess this was maybe the week after the first episode of season series one of I'm Alan Partridge, I guess, I think it had played maybe the night before. And I heard someone describing the episode and I said, what are you talking about? He was describing it. And I, I just, it, it sounded like he was talking about something so familiar, but I couldn't make sense of what he was saying. You know what I mean? Like, like the, it sounded like I just couldn't follow the plot. And I'm like, but they were talking about how funny it was. And I was like, I have to see this show just so I can understand what they're saying, you know. Like it was like he lives in a travel tavern. I'm like that meant nothing to me. That phrase travel tavern meant nothing to me. He was describing the character who's a Geordi, and I'm like, what's that? And I'm like I just didn't know anything. So I started watching I'm Alan Partridge, but I became obsessed with it, and then I bought VHS tapes at HMV. I think of Knowing Me, Knowing You. or it, Somehow I got a hold. I was able to watch Knowing Me, Knowing You and Knowing Me, Knowing Yule. And this character was so unlike anything that I'd seen before. Um, it reminded me, in some ways, it reminded me of things I liked, like the Larry Sanders show in terms of just the, the awkwardness of the behavior. That, that, that it is like... But it was so specific. And so I just became... I remember coming back and trying to tell people in America about Alan Partridge, and it's just really hard to explain, you know, it's hard to explain what's so funny about it without seeing it, and I remember when I was living in London then, I, I went and saw, uh, he did a tour where he played, I think it was Alan Partridge and other less popular characters, I think might have been the name of the tour, or it might have been The Man Who Thinks He's It, I can't remember which, that was the same tour or not, but I know it was a thing where he did like Paul Caff and Pauline Caff, and he did Duncan Thicket. No, this was all very funny, but then the second half of it was Alan Partridge, and it was clear that it's like everybody wanted to see Partridge, and it was great. And I bought a t-shirt that had Alan Partridge's face on it. and i I don't know why I thought this at the time, but I remember thinking, I don't like going up to celebrities when I see them. I like to leave celebrities alone. I've always sort of felt like it's awkward. It's never what you want. But I remember thinking, If I ever see Steve Coogan, I will go up to him and tell him what a big fan I am. Because at the time, and this is maybe a crazy thought, but at the time, I remember thinking, I bet he doesn't have any American fans. And it might be a novelty for him to know that there's like, he has an American fan. Um, Because I think this was before, you know, maybe, I think... People like Ben Stiller or Jim Jarmusch, people like that, were fans. But it definitely felt like he was sort of like a well kept secret in America in the late nineties, because you, the only way you would have seen it is if people like smuggled over tapes or something, you know. And I remember thinking, if I ever run into him, I will go up to him and say what a big fan I am, because I thought, well, maybe it'll be that'll mean something to him. And I was in line at I think a Costa coffee shop on Oxford Street, and I realized that Steve Coogan was standing in line behind me. But I also realized that I was wearing my Alan Partridge shirt <laughs> and I thought I can't, I can't say hi to him because that's literally the plot of an episode of yeah. I'm Alan Partridge is the, the, the stalker fan who has his face tattooed on his chest. And I couldn't, I was not prepared for how it's absolutely mortifying to, to realize that you're in the room with a person whose face is on your shirt there's something about it that is it's humiliating. Yeah, I remember feeling like I have to get out of here. I can't let him see this. I look crazy. And and I got out I I, I got out of line. I didn't get what I, I was getting a juice. And I just got out of line and I left because I couldn't bear to, to have Steve Coogan see that I was wearing a shirt, even though, you know, they sell the shirts at his show. You know, it's not like <laughs> <laughs> it, it was, was a official. coincidence. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't like I, I wasn't quite the same as as that I had tattooed his face, but I just thought I can't go up to someone and be like, I'm a huge fan of yours, and then have him look at my shirt and be like, oh no. You know, we live in a world where that, I thought, even aside from anything else, that's maybe potentially terrifying to a celebrity, you know, Uh in a, in a, in a you know, John Lennon sort of way, you know, I'm your biggest fan. That's, that's a nightmare for famous people. And I was cognizant of that. And I was also cognizant of how just at a very basic level of human dignity and high status, low status, that I had lowered myself somehow to uh, this, you know, fawning uh, fan, you know, I wear your face on my shirt. It just was too much. I had to get out of there. But it didn't stop me being a fan. I followed every Partridge thing since then, even though sometimes they've been hard to find. Mm. Things like Mid-Morning Matters, uh, that was hard. It's kind of hard to be a a Partridge fan in America because, you know, I, I found out, you know, I only just recently found out about this time. Somehow almost a year had gone by and I'd never, no one had mentioned it to me. I'd seen nothing about it on social media. Um, And I think that series is as strong as any Partridge thing that he's ever done. That's one of the things that's so impressive about the movie to me Mm. is that the character keeps evolving and it still feels fresh. And in some ways there are some, you know, there are early episodes because the character is, you know, he he has a, a, a problematic nature. You know, there are things in Knowing Me, Knowing You that if, you know, uh, uh, to a modern viewer might not hold up well. Um, There are some things that are, like, trying to push the edge back then. And since then, sensibilities have, uh, have changed somewhat. And now things that were, like, shocking then are now kind of offensive. And yet the character has remained, like, they've been very thoughtful about the way they've evolved this character so that it can stay fresh and relevant and also, like, adapt to the times because the Alan Partridge who is in Alpha Papa is not the same character from, you know, Knowing Me, Knowing You or I'm Alan Partridge. The character has grown um uh, later on we'll be taking dedications for anyone who's been wrongly turned down for planning permission also i'll be asking which is the worst manga fish iron rumor or war pretty clear that one but now it's time for today's large question, large. Large
0: question. the joy of alan partridge especially if people aren't so familiar with it is is you you really do want more because they he isn't in actually in that much stuff considering how popular he is especially in britain like the character is a household name it made steve hugan huge over here but there's what a radio show he's a character on an ensemble comedy he's had three bbc standalone series and a christmas special and then he went away for a really long time. <laughs> and yeah. then he sort of re-emerged. And I think they know that he, he just, he comes when there's, an, there's a reason for him to come back, you know. And I, I think that's really great uh, about this character and the, the writer behind the scenes. The Gibbons brothers, uh, Neil and Rob Gibbon, who came on board for for Bin Morning Matters and they wrote an autobiography as Alan Partridge, um, yeah. which is, is incredible. But um, the movie really gets a chance to, uh, gives them a chance to show their work to a much bigger audience and now they're you know, they're just part of the Partridge team. They are modern-day Partridge All of the things yeah. he's done since 2013 when Alpha Popper first came out is is with the Gibbons
1: Yes, like Scissored Isle and uh, the places of my life like there's been a lot of uh, and some of that uh, is hard to find but like I think one of the greatest Partridge things in, it, one of my favorite Partridge things is in is the Tesco where he's in Tesco and he's he's working the the register and there's the he's telling the woman to not to put uh, Her items put the basket on the back of the belt and put the like and it's it's as good a comedy routine as I've ever seen it, It's the woman walking like putting it on the belt and letting the the items come to him <laughs> uh, I think you can find it on YouTube. I highly recommend watching this scene because it is it is masterful it is so like uh simple and yet complicated and so elegantly done and so smart and so silly and there's and there's a lot of moments like that in alpha like Alpha Papa has a genuinely good plot line moment to moment it is genuinely funny but it also has like these like sort of formal structural elements there's a there's a there's a moment in this where Calm Meany, who plays the man who's holding the radio station hostage. He's a fired DJ um, since a big corporate company, communications company, has bought the station. And Calm Meany starts to fall asleep. And and Alan Partridge is looking at how he could... like. It, it feels like it's a moment where he's going to be able to take advantage of it. And then there's a quick cut to Calm Meany coming in to the room loudly waking him up. And alan has also fallen asleep and then oh um I, i'm always so i always forget the name of uh, the guy he hosts with um
0: sidekick simon played by tim key Sidekick
1: simon yes who is so perfect who's so perfect simon's reaction where he's clearly been sitting there in the room all night with a tied up with a shotgun uh funnel hat on his head <laughs> and he says and he's just his his expression just furious that he's watched alan partridge sleep all night it's now morning and it is as it is as loud as i've laughed in a theater it was such a well-timed bit of business and the movie is full of that like it's funny from start to finish
0: it's really really packed full of gags um which is is impressive and sometimes i think there's a especially with british sitcoms that then become feature films there's 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 been a lot of failures uh in that respect yeah are you being served a movie holiday on the buses mm-hmm. these things have left this weird sort of zeitgeist of oh you no know, don't adapt to sitcom into being a feature film um it doesn't work out but we've had some really great examples as well the Inbetweeners film was one of the highest grossing films in britain when when that opened and, and i think alan partridge alpha papa came in the wake of of things like the Inbetweeners going to the big screen i think fans approached it It really excitedly, but also with that sort of due sense of caution and dread. We've been burned before, but wow, does it deliver?
1: Yeah, what's interesting is on the one hand, it's this big siege action film. It has action sequences, it has things that are big and exciting and movie size, things that he never could have done on a TV scale and budget. And yet, there's so many moments in the movie that are. Brought down to the size of mid-morning matters there. I like that. There are sequences that are just them in the radio studio where they haven't lost sight of the fact that we still want to see those moments, which honestly I have to say it is amazing to me that they haven't run out of ways to be funny. There's the moment where he does the there's the the musical cue and he does the hand gesture as if he's playing the piano in the air and then he quietly says, sorry, that's the wrong way because the the musical notes were going like, doo, 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 doo. they were going from like low to high and his hand gesture was high to low. And he says, sorry, that was the wrong way. Even though he's on the radio, no one can see it except us, which is such a great example of, I, you know, one of the things I love about Alan Partridge as a character, and this is one of the things that I think particularly in, in the movie, in the last series, is that He's not—he's he's educated. Like, he's mm. he's manages to be a character who can be bafflingly stupid while being sophisticated and intelligent. Like, he's not a bad broadcaster. He's not bad at his job, even though there are those moments like that where it's like, don't say that on the air, you know, where he's like, there's no reason to say, sorry, that was the wrong way. That's actually bad radio, objectively, because the listener is like, what, what does he mean, sorry, that was the wrong way? And yet— When he corrects somebody about grammar or about facts, he's not wrong. They're not made-up facts. Like, he is someone who has, you know, retained information in a way that he is— sometimes he'll be the smartest character in any given room, and yet he's still the fool. I think we know watching this that Alan is smarter than the people who have taken over the radio station, like the corporate guys— we know that Alan is smarter than that guy. We also know that he's actually a better person than that guy while also being this, like, deeply flawed buffoon. I think that's one of the things that makes the character last is that uh, there's this term that uh, is thrown around a lot in terms of, like, in, in improv or UCB where people say playing to the top of your intelligence, which is, like, don't just, like, don't just be stupid in an improv scene because you can be funny being stupid. Be the smartest version of... Of stupid that you can be. And I think Alan Partridge is the epitome of like the smartest version of stupid that Steve Coogan's a smart guy and it would be a real waste for him to just play an idiot. I think it's one of the things that's great is that he sometimes lets Alan be as smart as he is and be as skilled as he is. And finds the right moments where, where it's surprising for him to be stupid. Like there's a line where he, when he's with the, the woman that he ends up with in Alpha Papa, where they're in the bathroom and he starts to say her name and realizes that um, he doesn't know her second name, but he doesn't realize it until halfway through the sentence. And then he has no choice but to admit, I'm so sorry, I've I've forgotten your, your second name. That's so sophisticated. That's so much more surprising and thrilling comedically than if he was just playing Alan Partridge as this like puffed up idiot. Hey, I'm Kobe. And I'm Helen. And we are from Flix Watcher Podcast, another podcast in the Stripped Media family.
0: We're a movie podcast that reviews films on Netflix.
1: So if you've ever struggled to find a film on Netflix, then we're the podcast just for you.
0: Each episode, we have guests from other podcasts, big and small, who choose the films and we rate them with our unique scoring system.
1: So if you want to listen to Flixwatcher podcast, just type in Watcher, that's F-L-I-X, Watcher, into the very app that you'll listen to this podcast on. Visit www.stripped.media to find more about our podcast and 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. Now, I have to ask: Have you seen? Because I can't find this online, and it's one of my favorite things. And I, I, my my DVD is, is stranded in my New York apartment. I don't know when I'll see it again. Have you seen the alternate ending to this movie?
0: Ah, uh, yes, uh, I have. There's an alternate opening and an alternate ending on the on the DVD. Uh, the ending is the uh, the sort of the big rug pull, I guess. <laughs> yeah,
1: because there's there's a, there's a great there's a great rug pull in the middle of the movie, which is kind of the second beat of him falling asleep and then waking up is that he has an opportunity to take the gun and he imagines a full action sequence and it goes, you know, a couple of minutes before you realize it's a a fantasy sequence. It's a dream sequence. And it's very funny because, you know, it goes so long that you, you, you think you're past the point where it could be a fantasy sequence and then you get to the ending and it snaps back to the same point. And, he, and he's like, wait, so all of that, including, like, scenes that had nothing to do with him, like, it is as if the last half an hour of a movie has been a second rug pull. And I don't know whether they filmed it. I've never read whether they filmed it with any serious intent because... They break in the in the version that's on the deleted scenes. There's a point. It just comes to an end where Stephen's like, no, it's too stupid. I can't, you know, can't do it. So I don't know if it was written or if it was something that they imagined in post or like after improvising that on the set or something. Like, I don't know. But there is a part of me that does... Kind of regret that they didn't tack that on at the end of the credits as a as a sort of Marvel movie tag because the idea that the the whole climax of the movie everything they go through is just part of his momentary fantasy is really, really funny.
0: I took away, because they do break um, towards the end of that that dialogue scene, I I, I sort of took it as that was something that was maybe improved. But I do think there was a lot of improv with this, and I also think the script changed quite a bit whilst they were shooting, just remembering production stories. They shot it so quickly. It it started shooting in January in 2013, and it was premiered in July 2013. Wow. It was such a quick project, but throughout that time, because... And there's like five writers on it, and one of them is Steve Coogan. Um, I think they were sort of constantly writing and just tweaking things and changing. So they went into the shoot, as far as I'm aware, not knowing the exact ending. And we ended up with, you know, it's a very climactic ending. It's very sort of cinematic. But uh, but yeah, I don't mm-hmm. know. I'd I love to think that that was something they sort of threw around and maybe like, let's just film it,
1: see what happens. I really couldn't have been happier with this movie. It's a very, very rewatchable movie. Like it's the kind of movie that, because there are movies that I love that are hard to rewatch. Like one of my favorite movies is After Hours, the Martin Scorsese comedy. And I could watch it a lot, but there are times when I would need to take a break from it because it's so such an anxiety-inducing movie. And this movie, I think is is pretty remarkable in the way that it manages to be a high-stakes siege movie where they take the threat seriously. I don't there's not a lot of instances of them joking around in a way that fractures the reality of, of how serious the situation is. And yet, they manage to arrive at a tone where that doesn't feel—you um, don't feel smothered by it. It doesn't feel like it's an exhausting film to watch. It's actually incredibly fun. And I think that is a very difficult thing to do. Like, to be a fun movie— that takes a hostage crisis seriously. They don't undermine the the reality of what's going on at any point. They never go for the joke over the base reality of the circumstance, which I think is the real danger with a movie like this is that you would make a joke that somehow makes it that like, oh, there's no real danger here. There's no there's no risk that Pat Farrell is going to kill anybody. You really do feel like he might, even by accident. You feel like that there's a, a good chance that someone could... could and at the end, honestly, watching in the movie theater, I thought they were going to kill off Alan Partridge. I genuinely thought when they got to the point where he gets shot on the pier, I thought maybe this is like the way they're going to end the franchise. They're going to just end, retire the character with this movie. And, the, and I would have been... Obviously, that would have been sad because, especially in hindsight now, the idea that we would have missed all these other, some of the best Alan Partridge things have happened since this movie. And yet I felt like it was a movie where that could happen. And I think it's important to be able to to watch the movie and feel like there's real stakes.
0: Absolutely. I think it's something that you don't, you, the film doesn't need to do that. It could be an entertaining Alan Partridge film. It could be a light, very safe, frothy experience, but the filmmakers are are doing something that they couldn't do in a 30 minute TV show with this. It's a deeper story yeah. and there are there's way more at stake. And, and absolutely, I think it feels quite, in some ways, even though, you know, there's lots of gags in there, the hostage situation is quite tense and it's quite realistic. Pat Farrell is scary because he's quite unhinged. Carmine plays him really well. I think I think Carmine uh. and Steve Coogan are, you have to cast a great actor in the Pat Farrell role to go against Coogan and to have so many scenes with Coogan playing this character. He's yeah. played so much, but but Carmine is such a good, he's like the right balance as well as like, he's a known face, but he's not, the star persona doesn't get in the way
1: of him playing a washed-up DJ. Yeah, it's perfect. It's perfect casting because you're right. You could undermine the movie by having someone who is—he's exactly the right level of. It's very impressive that they got him for the movie, but it's not so impressive that it's not like it's not like putting Tom Cruise or somebody into it where it feels like. Um, you're in a different reality or different universe. He, he's, he's the kind of actor that the second he comes into the movie, you feel like, oh, we really are watching a movie. Like, this is another level. Yeah. They've got a, a big actor to play this role. And yet he's also a perfect actor to convey this, you know, because he's also like, Colmini feels like a real guy who could work in a real job. And that's also a hard thing because a lot of very big actors, you know, it's easier to buy them playing Thor than to buy them playing a working class stiff. What is going on in here? Oh, Pat, uh, uh, Michael's just visiting us from the cupboard. No need to get shouty-shouty. Did so those Gordale bastards put you up to this? No, 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 no. I,
0: I've, I've been in here a few nights, like... The one night? No, a few nights. A few nights this week, a few nights the week
1: before. Why? Well, my brother wanted the bed to himself. Ah, oh, yes. Michael suffers from night terrors. He thrashes about like a big salmon. What's in the box? (sighs) Michael... Michael let himself down. I'm really sorry I don't know shit in the box
0: what's refreshing with this film is you you see alan interact with more people than the character has ever interacted with before because <laughs> it's quite a big canvas that he's playing with you know there's 12 hostages there's all of the, the police and all these other and i think they do a really good job of introducing the new characters but also bringing back a few fan favorites like we see lynn his long-suffering pa for the first time in well since i'm alan partridge and
1: the same with michael uh, felicity
0: montague and simon green come back and they're both
1: so great they're so i mean i think if you didn't have lynn in this movie um it would be a very different movie she's so wonderful she's so good now uh, one thing that i find interesting is that uh you know they have the sort of and again this is a george lucas influence you have the from american graffiti you have the cards at the end that update you on what happened to the characters which is i believe american graffiti was the movie that started that because when like animal house like spoofed it so uh, that's the George Lucas influence in Alan Partridge, Alpha Papa. I believe this is that's the last time that we see Michael.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Jordy
1: Michael, he jumps into the water, <laughs> and at the end it says he was never found. And it says it in such a definitive way that in 2020 now, I'm actually like, oh, my God what a it's such a throwaway moment that then they make a very dark joke at the end of the movie but i always assumed that we would see him again in something else <laughs> if that is truly the last we see of michael my goodness what a shock like that is one that is is more shocking you know 7 years later um <laughs> <that> he, <laughs> he jumps off the pier to distract and then we go oh, no and then yeah I mean I I do I do hope we see Michael again in something it it, 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 I, it was I was glad to see him in this and and it does make me laugh to think that his end his character comes to an end in such such a meaningless and ridiculous way i think it is canon that he is um
0: that he is dead because i think there's a there's a more recent partridge book where they say he i think they searched they say they searched for him and and they couldn't find a body so he's now you know
1: he's he's officially deceased george george r r martin rules you know you show me a body you know i'll believe it when they have verified proof it also does make sense that michael would vanish and then appear 15 years later any other character vanished for that long you might think well why 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 did they not reemerge but he's a character that has always had an element of uh, the unpredictable and the mysterious even just even his appearance in this movie where he's hiding in the cupboard but he's been in there longer than the siege had happened <laughs>
0: <laughs> been in there for two days with his plastic box. Uh, it was it was really great to see them them come back because I didn't I had no idea Lynn or Michael would, would ever return. I just thought that was you know that was the I'm Alan Partridge cast and and we're in this new you know the Tim Key sidekick Simon in Morning Matters world and it's quite nice yeah. to see them them come together in this. I think it delivers for the fans without them just repeating jokes from from the BBC series. Uh, it was yeah. it, it was sort of like passing the baton over and yeah I'd love to see both of them in uh, in more Partridge. Work in
1: future yeah i do think the form i'm really glad that this time with alan partridge is coming back because i do think they've sort of struck upon the ideal form for a partridge tv show because it has everything that you want from the knowing me knowing you on camera version of alan but the fact that it's the live feed of the show so you get the you still get the behind the scenes moments with lynn and you get to see the i'm alan partridge because that was the amazing thing It was like knowing me knowing you was limited by the fact that he was on camera the whole time Mm. so I'm i'm alan partridge was the first time that you got to see what he was like off camera and then since then it's been a mix of you know on the air off the air and this time with alan partridge really feels like oh you get to see him do field pieces so it's kind of like the specials in between uh during like when they're not on camera or when there's a a remote piece playing on the screen. So then their, their mics are off and they're on the set. You get to see like the full range of Partridge. And he's also so vulnerable because he knows that this is, you know, maybe his last shot. Like this is, he's getting a second chance, you know, he's, he's actually, he's bouncing back. He's actually (laughs) bouncing back. Um, Unlike the, the, uh, the sort of faux bounce back of his pulped, (laughs) <laughs> uh, book for the second series. We actually get to see him bounce back, you know, twenty years later. I think
0: when you have a character like Partridge, it's you know, he needs to have a few wins. I guess it's a bit like Larry David in Kobe Enthusiasm as well. Like he yeah. can take so much, but actually we are still rooting for him and we want to see him get to his goal. And and this is a goal that's I guess since knowing me, knowing you all, you know, twenty, thirty years in yeah. the making, him back on the, the BBC,
1: and his, you know, I think the way they promoted the, the the commercial, which I only saw after I'd watched the series, but it's basically the cold open from the first episode where he's just saying, "Can I have some water, please? I have a my mouth is dry. Can I have some water? My mouth is dry," and he's just over and over repeating this, and no one's getting him wa- water, and then it goes to the test pattern and. It tells us so much about the journey this character has been on because he's so cocksure when he's on Knowing Me Knowing You, he's convinced that he's making great television. And then I'm Alan Partridge starts, and it's the first sign of like maybe he's not gonna not gonna be able to make it back. And then you have 20 years of him being relatively settled to resigned to a life on Radio Norwich. Thinking back to my podcast, which is starts with this failure in the year 2000 and then 20 years later is me like trying to like recover this is that the Partridge journey is kind of a similar thing of of starting out and having the success of this big TV show. And then, you know, he kills a man and he insults the head of programming at, at the BBC. You know, he basically ruins his career on camera. And then we watch him sort of suffer and struggle for all these years and then to put him back on the air and he's you can tell he's not he's not who he was he's nervous in a way that he wasn't back then he knows that it can be taken away and yet you can't remove the part of him that's also you can't tell the hubris is such an important part of alan partridge the confidence the uh him knowing best you know it's such an enticing blend for a character Steve Coogan and this movie does it very well, which is he's constantly moving the dial on what Alan's comfort level is. And that dictates which Alan we get. Like when he makes the speech to the the new owners of the radio station and he comes in confident that he knows the argument to make for them to not fire him or Pat. And then he finds out that he's wrong, that he hasn't fully done the research that he's saying you're going to lose your audience to this other station they're all going to go to this other station and then he finds out that they own that station too so they don't care and then he looks down and he sees the drawing on the paper at the list of names and they've circled his name and they've circled pat farrell's name saying like which one should we fire and he pivots immediately to writing just sack pat and it is just like the alan partridge who walked into that room was this puffed up, righteous, thought he knew all the angles guy who was going to come in here and tell everybody what was what. And then by the end of it, he's literally crawling back into the room to retrieve his (laughs) glove. Oh my God. One of the details. Oh God. It's so funny. He drops his gloves and he leaves the room and they're all looking at the gloves on the floor. And you see him reach to get the one glove and he misses he doesn't get both gloves he only gets one of the two gloves and you he makes this noise he makes this pathetic noise that is just it's so relatable because he's like it was already so much it was already so low status it was so humiliating of him to reach in to get that glove and he didn't get both gloves and he's just (laughs) he knows he's gonna go back in and that they're all looking at him And it is just such a, he's not even on camera. He's not even on camera. And it's one of the funniest things I've ever seen in a movie. Like that's how funny Steve Coogan is as Alan Partridge. He doesn't even need to be on camera in the movie in order to get one of the biggest sort of behavioral laughs from the audience.
0: There we have it. Alan Partridge, Alpha Popper is in the 90 Minutes or Less Film Festival. Really excited to have this here. At our fictional film festival, I will give you a cinema, I'll give you a print of the movie, and a blank check to kind of do what you like in that
1: auditorium. I mean, in some ways, in some ways, this is going to be a, a kind of a boring answer, because the two, I think the two ideal ways to show this are ways that I believe have happened. The first thought is that, well, you want to screen it in Norwich, which I believe he did like a premiere there. But it was um it was quite controversial. So so when
0: the film came out in twenty thirteen, they booked Leicester Square in London, which is the big famous place for all of the premieres, and the people of Norwich started a petition to say, No no, Alan Partridge has to premiere in Norwich. And um, it was a crowds funded sort of thing to to it was in all the local press to get Alan to get Steve Coogan to Norwich and they were like, No no, we're we're all in this film. There's so many people of Norwich in this movie, he's our most famous export, this fictional character. Um, and and yeah, they did they did two premieres in one day so they it, it, he appeared in character as Alan Partridge at the worst cinema in Norwich they chose the cheapest kind of <laughs> most disappointing movie theater and then he got onto a helicopter and he arrived via helicopter to the London premiere which is also quite an Alan Partridge thing to do
1: yes and you can wa- I watched this video online of the premiere and then him getting in the helicopter it's a very funny video because he also like tries to be cool getting on the helicopter getting on and he's clearly terrified in the helicopter helicopter and then his his headphone catches on the as he's getting off trying to make a cool exit. But the other honestly, the was it now it was in Leicester Square. Was it at the Odeon? Was it at the big London Odeon? It was
0: at The View, you know, it's an absolutely fine cinema, but it is not the famous
1: Odeon, which is one big
0: auditorium with like 2,000 seats, and it was in a, in a multiplex. So they actually did the premiere in multiple screens. There was a really nice flourish at the premiere where every seat had a shop-soiled Terry's chocolate orange in the yes. cup holder. And, yeah, uh, <laughs> it's just
1: superficial superficial damage to the packaging. there's nothing wrong with it. The...
0: <laughs> uh, the people, the team at the distributor spent the afternoon soiling uh, the chocolate oranges <laughs> for the audience. <laughs>
1: I have been to the the London Odeon exactly once uh, when I lived in London. It is the, I think, is it the most expensive movie theater in the world? Oh, I mean, insane. it's yeah. so expensive. <laughs> like, it's so expensive to go to the movies in that theater. If I had an unlimited budget, I would screen Alpha Papa at that theater. Uh, uh, oh, I'll say two things. I'll say uh, Norwich is obviously one thing. London, Leicester Square on that big screen, a free screening. That's what I do. I would do a free screening so people could get in to see that movie without having to pay you know, <laughs> 40 pounds for a ticket or whatever it is now. It really is. The last time I was in London, I walked past just to see how much tickets were. And I don't even remember the number. It was it was unbelievably high. I, but I also, I, there's a movie theater I really like here in Missouri where I'm at at the moment called the Ragtag Cinema um, which is a, a really wonderful, small, independent movie theater. And it's the kind of movie theater where they someone comes out before the movie and talks to the audience about not just the movie that they're showing, but also, like, movies that are coming to the theater. Um, so I think that would be where I'd— if I could, if I could do it anywhere uh, that wasn't huge like the London Odeon, i I'd do it at the Ragtag Cinema. And I was going to say Shop Soiled Oranges. That's a great idea, the, the Chocolate Oranges— But uh, I think Toblerone's would also be something that you want to offer for people to gorge themselves on Toblerone's. And then I looked, there was actually, if you look up Alan Partridge foods, someone has a a list on Reddit that lists every food that Alan Partridge ever mentions. (laughs) So I think if I had an unlimited budget, we would offer all of every food that Alan Partridge has ever uh, mentioned. Maybe not for sale. Let's say not for sale. Let's say it would be available like buffet style. Um, but on a 10-inch plate and so <laughs> people will be encouraged to smuggle in Larger plates for the for the free buffet of every food that Alan Partridge has ever mentioned
0: This is gonna be a big screening and there will be a stage if you could invite just one person Maybe up on stage or to have an interview with you. Who would you invite?
1: I mean the obvious answer is Steve Coogan and that would be great and everything But I feel like if it couldn't be Steve Coogan, it would either be Sue Cook or Bill Addy. Um <laughs> And the reason I say that is because I I know nothing about Sue Cook or Bill Adi except as names that were dropped by Alan Partridge. These are not references that were familiar to me. And yet I knew every time he mentioned one of them that it was funny that he was talking to them. It almost reminded me of when you're a kid and you're watching like animated cartoons from like the 1930s or 40s. There are references that I still do not understand because they were popular references of the day. And yet you knew intuitively like that joke is funny. If I only understood what they were referring to, you know, like someone would say like, open the door. And then they turn to the camera and say, notice I didn't say Richard. And I'm like, I don't know what that refers to. I still don't. I've never looked it up, but I know it's funny. I know it's funny that they said it. And so it might be funny if I could find anybody to have Sue Cook or Bill Otty, And I'd, you know, ask them questions. I'd find out the information that I have uh, failed to ever look up in part because in some ways I don't want to ruin... I have a such a particular enjoyment of not knowing who they are, but knowing that it's funny that those are the people that Alan Partridge has on speed dial or that he's like, you know, Sue Cook canceled and he's mad about it. Or like he was talking to Bill Oddie, and I'm like, I know those are funny references without doing any of the legwork to find out who they are. I know that like anybody in England knows exactly who they are. For, I mean, I know they're broadcasters. I know, that but I don't have like. That that's not something that I grew up with or that I had any frame of reference for so that would be my that would be my answer um, Probably Bill Adi cuz cuz I think Sue Cook uh, canceled on, on Alan, so <laughs> we'd probably go, I'd probably go with Bill Adi.
0: Well, you'd have to Bill Bill it as Sue Cook, but she's canceled <laughs> on the night yes. And then Bill Audie's the backup <laughs> yes, guest. <laughs> that's, how, that's exactly that's
1: exactly how we do it
0: I think as the producer of this festival my, my flourish uh, if the filmmakers would allow would be to get Simon Green who plays Michael to maybe be like the usher who's cleaning the screen at the end of the film so it sort of lives on after that title card, you know, he's he's incognito. He's he's working yes. as, a, as a cinema attendant.
1: Uh, yeah, that would be oh, that's yeah That's a very nice flourish. I like that.
0: <laughs> what an excellent screening as well Alan back in back in London uh, or Norwich, maybe both. We'll just recreate that dual That dual right. experience. Well, thank you so much Connor for talking about Alan Partridge a character I didn't ever anticipate being able to talk about on the show and especially uh, With someone who wasn't British it's been such yes. a fun conversation.
1: I, I there are very few people in my life that I've been able to ever talk about Alan Partridge with. And so anytime that I can, I'm, I'm, I'm eager to do it because uh, I have so much affection for this character. I feel like uh, as a comedian and an actor, I feel like I've learned so much from the way that this character is, has, has developed and the way that he, you know begins as a as a no not a one-note character but certainly a more um a more binary character in terms of he's like this he's like this and over time has really evolved into a full human person you know in a way that i wouldn't i think it's lovely i think i i think he's we've watched alan grow up to the point where by the time he gets to alpha papa we're really he's really blossoming into a different kind of character
0: i don't know if you saw that alan partridge is launching a podcast
1: yeah, there aren't that many exciting things that are positive. uh So uh, at the moment, you know, there's so many things that are that are either terrifying or, or or tragic or or horrible. It's nice to have a little bit of good news. I'm very happy to see Alan heading into uh, the only medium possible at the current moment. You know,
0: and it's an 18 part series they've announced, so there'll be a lot of Alan for us to see out the year, which would be great. <laughs> Where can people find out more about Deadeyes and and keep up to date with what you're working on, Connor?
1: Mostly you can follow me at Connor Ratliff on Twitter. Um, You can also follow Deadeyes Podcast on Twitter, and uh, all the episodes of Deadeyes are available pretty much wherever you get podcasts. uh, It's a HeadGum series, so you can go right to the... HeadGum website and find out all about it. And if you want to see me pretend to be George Lucas, the George Lucas talk show um, is Sundays on planetscum.live. Thanks so much, Connor. It's great talking to you, Sam.
0: Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. You can also listen on our website, 90minfilmfest.com. That's 90minfilmfest.com. You can contact us there or on Twitter and Instagram at 90minfilmfest. The podcast is produced by Louise Owen and me, Sam Clements. The show is edited by Louise Owen, with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick, and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network. Back of the net.